Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. The Peter Schiff Show. After flirting with the 29,000 level for several days, the Dow Jones Industrials finally managed to close above that level for the first time ever. The Dow rose 90.55 points. We closed at 29,030. All of the major markets hitting uh, new highs on the year, all of the new record highs, except again the Russell 2000, which is at a new 52-week high, but still is not where it was at its peak back in the fall of 2018. Part of the impetus for this rally has been the anticipation of the trade deal, initially a trade deal with China, and then uh a phase one trade deal, which was a step down uh, from the grandiose deal that was originally uh, promised. Uh, But of course, uh, the main driver of the rally has been the Fed. I think the anticipation of a trade deal is responsible for some of the gains, but the majority of the gains are clearly uh, the result of the Fed. Uh, The Fed's policy reversal, it's taking away the rate hikes and delivering rate cuts instead. It's quietly returning to QE, even though it's officially denying that it's doing it. It's clearly doing QE. And that is what has been driving the market. Although I think the anticipation of a trade deal has acted as a rumor uh, that traders continuously bought and bought and bought. And what I have been uh, warning all along is that 
once we actually get a deal, well, now the traders uh, can sell on the news. And so I thought that the prospect of a deal where the president can pretend that it's going to be great was actually going to be better than delivering a deal that can actually be scrutinized. And that's exactly uh, what the president has done. And so we'll see now if the stock market sells off. I mean, if investors now, which, you know, there really is nothing to look forward to anymore. I mean, this so-called good news is now in the past. Uh, In the meantime, traders can start focusing on all the bad news that they've been ignoring and the even worse news that's likely to you know, come in the future. So we could see a sell-off, uh, particularly when people really start to think about the deal and what it actually delivers. Now, of course, Donald Trump uh, kicked off the signing with this huge signing ceremony. Uh, and you know, it really was uh, uh, quite, a, quite a display. I mean, I watched most of it live. I mean, I'm sure it's on the Internet somewhere if you want to check it out. Uh, But again, it was really like a campaign event uh, or maybe an acceptance speech, you know, when somebody wins an award because Donald Trump kept thanking people over and over again, wanting to give everybody credit. Of course, he started off by thanking all the usual suspects like, you know, Larry Kudlow, but he had particularly uh, strong praise for Lou Dobbs, you know, because Lou Dobbs recently has kind of gone off the deep end in his Trump worship. You know, first he was like, Trump is the greatest president since Reagan. Now he's even greater than Reagan. And of course now, uh, or more recently, he's the greatest president ever. He's greater than George Washington. In fact, he's a god, right? He's not a mere mortal. That's how great he is. So if you really, really praise the president, well, then, you know, you set yourself up uh, to, uh, you know, get a shout out at one of these events. And he talked about, uh, Lou Dobbs, and he, he basically mentioned, hey, he's got this great show. I'm sure everybody here watches the Lou Dobbs show every day. And, you know, I think he does have a pretty popular show on Fox Business. But you got to remember, not that many people watch uh, business news, right? So the fact that maybe he has a top show on Fox Business uh, doesn't mean that all that many people in the scheme of things are watching that show every day. Uh, but, you know, Trump, you know, blew it out of proportion as he does with everything. But of course, then he went on the bank a litany of private sector CEOs and entrepreneurs and some other government people uh, for their role in delivering this fantastic deal, the greatest deal in the history of deals. I mean, nobody has ever seen anything like this deal, which maybe is true because there's never been a deal so inconsequential and insignificant as this deal. So in a way, maybe Trump is being honest about about that aspect, but not, you know, for the reasons that he that he said. But anyway, so he, he he talks about how great the economy is and how great this deal is. And then, you know, kind of goes off on a tangent. And all of a sudden he starts talking about negative interest rates, which I thought was the funniest part of this whole ceremony. Uh, here he is, you know, he's signing this trade deal. Uh, and yet he's talking about negative interest rates, right? And and when he talks about them, he starts describing how other people, right, in Europe or Asia, how they're so fortunate, how they're so lucky because they get to borrow at negative rates. That here in America, we have to pay to borrow money, yet other people get paid to borrow. And he says, we need that here. This is great. This is fantastic. You know, how do we get that over here? I mean, we need some of that. It's not fair. I want negative rates here. So he's singing the praises of negative interest rates, right? And he wants negative interest rates in the United States because they're such a great thing. Then all of a sudden, he kind of poses 
uh, a rhetorical question to to the audience there. He says, you know, but, you know, I don't know who's buying all these bonds. I mean, who is dumb enough to buy these negative yielding bonds, right? I mean, that is the question that Trump is asking because he knows that if you can borrow at a negative rate, that's smart. But lending at a negative rate, well, that's dumb. I mean, even Trump is smart enough to know that's dumb, but apparently he's not smart enough to answer his own question. Who's buying those negative yielding bonds? The central banks. That's who's buying them. The ECB, the Bank of Japan. Without the central banks, nobody would be dumb enough to buy negative yielding bonds. Now, there probably are some speculators who are buying them simply because they think the central banks will keep buying them and they're trying to get a free ride on on that gravy train. But it's the foreign central banks. They're the ones that are dumb and they're buying these bonds. But if a central bank is doing something dumb, that means the economy is going to suffer. So because the ECB is dumb enough to buy these negative yielding bonds, they are screwing up the European economy. If the Bank of Japan is dumb enough to buy negative yielding JGBs, that's bad for the Japanese economy. But Donald Trump wants the Fed to do the same thing. He wants the Fed to join the party and do all the dumb things that the ECB is doing and that the Bank of Japan is doing. Now, not that the Fed doesn't do dumb things. They just haven't been that dumb yet. But President Trump wants them to be that dumb. He wants them to start buying U.S. Treasuries to the point that yields are negative, And then he wants them to keep buying so that we can borrow even more money and blow even more air into the biggest, fattest, ugliest bubble that has ever been inflated. But, you know, I thought that was very funny uh, that he doesn't know who's dumb enough to buy these bonds when it's central banks. And so if we had interest rates at negative levels, it would only be if the Federal Reserve did something really, really dumb, which apparently is what Donald Trump wants. And again, when he was a candidate, he was criticizing the Federal Reserve for doing political things. Well, the only reason that central bankers are doing something so stupid is for political reasons. I mean, they're not complete idiots. They know that this is dumb, but they're doing it politically because it's expedient. Because if they don't do it, then politicians are going to have to deal with reality. They're going to have to face the consequences of big deficits and maybe actually act responsibly and cut government spending. That's something that Donald Trump doesn't want to do either. So rather than making America great again, he wants to make the bubble he inherited even greater again. And a way to do that is to do stupid things, have your central bank be dumb and buy negative yielding rates so that we can blow a bigger bubble. So that's what what he wants. And all this somehow found its way into the signing ceremony uh, for the trade deal. But then if you look at the deal itself, and you can see the deal online, I haven't read the whole thing. It's like 90 pages long, but I've read uh, some key components of the deal. And one of the things that is apparent there is that the only thing that the Chinese are kind of committing to, although they're not really committing to do anything, but what the deal supposedly commits them to doing is buying more U.S. agriculture. I forget the dollar number on there, you know, per year, whatever it is, uh, how many billions, tens of billions. It's a big number, not as big as I think they've been talking, but they're big numbers uh, for agricultural products. And it actually specifically uh, mentions some of the products, you know, individually, what those products are that they're going to buy. And then they also are committing to buying U.S. energy, you know, liquid natural gas, oil, uh, so food and energy raw materials, commodities, that is what the Chinese 
are going to buy from the United States. Now, that's no big deal because China needs all these commodities anyway. I mean, they desperately need them. They need them in very large quantities. And of course, they can source them all over the world. I mean, anybody can grow food. And, you know, if you have land that you can farm, right? I mean, and of course, if you have energy, you know, you can bring it out of the ground. There are a lot of other energy producing nations uh, that can sell uh, to China. So to the extent that China is going to be buying more uh, food and energy from the United States, it may be buying less food and energy from some other source uh, unless it's, you know, demand uh, is growing. Of course, China can always stockpile uh, some of these commodities, which to me would be a lot better than stockpiling U.S. treasuries. In fact, this would be a huge win for China if it does end up buying extra commodities to store and it pays for it by selling U.S. treasuries. If it takes money that it otherwise would have loaned to the United States government by buying treasuries and instead buys actual stuff that they can really use that has value, that is a win for China. It's a double win for China. They get rid of treasuries that are going to collapse and they buy more real commodities that are going to go up in value. Now, on the other hand, what's America going to do if the Chinese are buying food and energy instead of uh, treasuries? Well, the Fed's going to have to Drop, buy more treasuries unless it wants to let interest rates go up. It's going to print more money. And of course, if the Chinese are buying more food and more uh, energy, if we're shipping our food and energy to China instead of China, you know, in, instead of um, our treasury bonds, what does that mean? Well, that means that the domestic supply of food and energy is lower than it was in the past. And that means the domestic price is going to be higher than it was in the past. Now, of course, there's nothing in here about bringing back U.S. manufacturing. I mean, the Chinese don't have to buy manufactured products here in the United States. It's more of a colonial relationship they have, right? We're the poor colony. All we can do is grow stuff, right, and, 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 and harvest things uh, uh, like energy out of the ground. And, you know, China does all the high-end manufacturing or stuff like that. But so we're not going to get more manufacturing jobs. We're just going to keep our lousy, low-paying service sector jobs. But now all those service sector workers, rather than getting better jobs, they're just going to have higher bills, right? When they go to the supermarket, when they go to the gas station, they're just going to be paying higher prices. And, you know, it's ridiculous. I was watching uh, earlier today on CNBC, uh, Diane Swank, who I used to be on with Diana Swank uh, back in the day uh, when the CNBC used to call me Dr. Doom. And I remember, you know, before uh, the uh, bubble burst, I would argue with her. I mean, one time I talked about all the problems for GM. Uh, and I said they were going to go bankrupt, which, of course, they did. And she was arguing with me. She was like, oh, my God, GM is great. Do you, do you know the guys there? This is a great one company. You know, she was like singing the praises of GM. Of course, then it went bankrupt. And, you know, I had quite a few uh, arguments uh, with her before the financial crisis. And, of course, uh, you know, if you could see those uh, uh, small debates now, clearly she was completely wrong about everything. Uh, I haven't been on with her recently. In fact, I think I was supposed to be on. Uh, a show with her on Fox Business, and then they canceled it. And I think my guess is because she found out that she was going to be debating me and decided that she didn't want to do it. Uh, but that's, you know, that's 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 just my gut. I don't know that for sure. But anyway, I was watching her on uh, on television today, and she's just as, you know, clueless about economics. And, of course, she's the chief economist for somebody, but she's clueless about economics. And she actually said that the Federal Reserve uh, – really wants a big pickup in inflation. That's their goal, right? They really want more inflation, which, of course, is not their goal. I mean, if Diana Swank understood anything about 
uh, the Fed or inflation or central bank, she would know that. I mean, but she just believes what the Fed says. But yes, the Fed says they want higher inflation, but that's just a pretense, right? Because the Fed has to pretend that we don't have enough inflation. That's the justification for its cheap money, right? That's how it keeps interest rates artificially low by saying we don't have enough inflation. But the last thing they actually want is more inflation. Because if we had higher inflation, well, then they'd have to drop the pretense. If they can't pretend that inflation is too low, then they have to let interest rates go up. They can't keep expanding the money supply. And then the whole bubble crashes. So in order to keep the party going, they have to keep pretending that there's no inflation. So the last thing they want is to actually have to admit that there's inflation. But unfortunately, you know, Diana Swank doesn't understand this. But what this deal is going to do instead of deliver uh, you know, jobs, it's going to deliver inflation. Also, if American farmers are going to sell more of what they grow to the Chinese, they're probably going to end up selling less uh, to buyers in other nations. And of course, those other nations will now be able to buy more of their agricultural products from the countries that China is buying less from to enable them to buy more from the United States. So overall, this might not really do anything to reduce America's overall trade deficit with the world. We just end up running smaller trade deficits with China, but then we run larger trade deficits with other nations. Now, as far as the actual substance of the deal is concerned, first of all, the deal doesn't put an end to the tariffs. In fact, I think one of the reasons that the markets were excited about a trade deal was because the tariffs were going to go away, right? I mean, this was a self-inflicted wound that we were going to heal with a trade deal. Well, the reality is the existing tariffs are simply going to be rolled back somewhat, but they're not going to be eliminated. There's still going to be substantial tariffs. The only thing the deal says is that there won't be any new tariffs. Or if there are new tariffs, the deal is off. Basically, that's what it says. If the, if the United States does impose any new tariffs, then it neutralizes the deal and the deal is off. Uh, so the kind of the tariffs will be frozen uh, at a moderate rollback level. That, I think, is bad news. I mean, the tariffs are a tax. Contrary to what Donald Trump says, all the evidence proves, as well as common sense in Econ 101, that it's the Americans who are paying the taxes. In fact, they, we just got the figures the other day for the national debt for 2019, because the year just ended, the calendar year. And the national debt, the official debt grew by over $1 trillion. That was a large increase over the prior year. In fact, the national debt, which is a more honest measure, uh, grew by more than $1.2 trillion. So more than 20% more than the official debt. But one of the reasons that the national debt didn't grow even more was because the government took in some extra tax revenue from the tariffs. So without the tariffs, the national debt would have grown even more. The budget deficit would have been even higher, but for the money the Americans paid in, in tariffs. And so Trump is going to continue that. And so that's going to continue to be you know, a negative uh, for the economy and for the markets. But, you know, not only is the deal off if Trump imposes tariffs, but probably the funniest clause in the entire agreement is really an escape clause. If you read the agreement, you'll see that there is a provision there that if either of the parties complains that the other party is not honoring the agreement, right, the party that has complained 
against, right? If that party determines on its own that the complaint was made in bad faith, then it can simply notify the complaining party in writing that the deal is off, which is completely absurd. I mean, what kind of deal is that? So you enter into a deal with somebody, right? And everybody agrees to do a bunch of things. But the deal also says that if one party doesn't live up to its commitments and the other party complains, then the deal is off. Then there's no deal at all. This isn't a deal. This is an agreement. This isn't some kind of monumental achievement. This is just a, a list of suggestions. This is just a list of things that either party may decide to do or may not decide to do. And if one party doesn't do what the other party thinks it's supposed to do, and then that party complains, well, it doesn't have to do anything at all because it just drops out of the deal. So the deal is much ado about nothing. And that is the problem now because it's not a big positive for the economy. It's not a game changer. Of course, they're talking about this laying the foundation for phase two, which is where all the real stuff is going to happen, which is why there's never going to be a phase two. This is the only phase we're ever going to get. Right? And the markets are going to have to deal with that. And it's a big, fat disappointment. The hype, right, or the reality, rather, did not live up to the hype. And so this should be more than just to buy the rumor, sell the fact, because the fact did not live up to the rumor. Now, you know, while the stock market really greeted the news with a bit of a yawn, in fact, once Trump actually put his John Hancock on the signature, the market sold off a bit. Uh, never really went negative, although the Nasdaq briefly went negative, although then they managed to close positive. But all the indexes were well off their highs. But the one market that closed on the high was the gold market. I mean, gold was stronger after uh, Trump signed the agreement than it was before. We finished the day at about 1556, up about $10. And gold stocks also closed on the highs of the day. You know, what's very interesting when you look at gold and gold stocks is gold stocks are still down two to three percent on the year if you look at the big indexes uh but gold itself is up two and a half percent on the year and we've had two days the last two days gold stocks have gone up but if you looked at where gold stocks closed on friday the gdx was actually down about six percent on the year uh when the price of gold uh you know was up you know about two and a half percent and I looked back for another January where this was the case, right? Where you saw a increase in the price of gold, right? So gold was strengthening, yet gold stocks were weakening. And I couldn't find a January where that happened since the year 2000. So 20 years ago, you had gold moving up in January, but gold stocks moving down. Now, what was happening 20 years ago, the year 2000? Well, that was the peak of the dot-com bubble, of the NASDAQ bubble, where the NASDAQ was just over 5,000. And then over the next two years, it fell by about 80%. It bottomed out at just over 1,100 in 2002. And you know, the NASDAQ just broke through 9,000 this year for the first time ever. So if you invested in the NASDAQ, if you bought in January of 2000, you're now up about 80% on that investment. In contrast, if you bought gold, you know, gold was trading for under $300 an ounce. It's now over $1,550 an ounce. So you have better than five times your investment if you bought gold, whereas if you bought the NASDAQ, you've only made 80% 
on that investment over the past 20 years. Also, 20 years ago, was kind of the bottom of a 20-year bear market in gold, which went from 1980 to the year 2000. So in January of 2000, because you had this boom in the dot-coms and this boom in the stock market and the NASDAQ, right, because everybody was so excited about the new economy, right, they were bidding up the stock market. But they were also negative on gold because gold had been in a bear market for 20 years. And even though the price of gold was rising a little bit early in January, there was still so much bearishness left over from this deep bear market that traders didn't even care. They ignored the rise in the price of gold and they dumped gold stocks anyway. Well, that's happening again today. It's the same attitude, right? Everybody is very optimistic on the U.S. stock market. And despite the rise in the price of gold, they're pessimistic and they're dumping their gold stocks. Now, of course, if you did that, if you dumped your gold stocks in 2000 and bought into the S&P or the NASDAQ, you made a major mistake. Because again, the U.S. stock market crashed over the next couple of years and it didn't even get back to where it was in 2000 until, until recently. In fact, you know, when the market peaked again, in, in 2008, before the crash, we were still way below, in the NASDAQ anyway, uh, where it was in, in 2000. So if you bought into the U.S. bubble in January of 2000, you made a major mistake. Of course, if you sold your gold stocks, you made an even bigger mistake because they began a 10-year rally where gold stocks were up 10x. We had a huge bull market in gold and gold stocks following January of 2000. So the fact that this January is very similar to that January, and there's no Januaries in between that look anything like it, I think that's another positive sign that we have a similar uh, sentiment extreme on stocks when people should be bearish and people should be bullish on gold stocks when they're not. They're selling gold stocks now, even as the price of gold is rising the same way they did in uh, January of 2000. But also, too, I read another article about the sale of a bullion, gold coins, uh, in 2019. And so the Perth Mint set an all-time record, right? They sold more coins than they've ever sold in one year. Meanwhile, during the same year, the U.S. Mint had its worst year ever for the sale of gold coins. Now, what does that tell you, right? foreigners are bullish on gold. And one reason is because gold has made a new high in every currency but the U.S. dollar. So Americans don't see the bull market the way Europeans might see it or, you know, people living in other countries, uh, but they will. I mean, Americans are going to be big buyers of gold coins uh, when gold's at new record highs in dollars. And I think they're going to be even bigger buyers if Donald Trump isn't reelected because you have a lot of Republicans who are very optimistic now. And so they're not buying gold, they're going to be extremely pessimistic if Bernie Sanders or somebody like that is president, and they're going to be buying gold like it's going out of style. And again, the other thing, the other reason that Americans are not buying gold is, again, they're still overly optimistic on the stock market. U.S. stocks have done a lot better than foreign stocks. And so when you compare the stock market to gold in the United States, the stock market still looks like a much better deal then when people in other countries compare their local stock market performance to the price of gold, from their prism, right, from that uh, perspective, uh, gold looks much better. But over the last four years, you know, the, even though gold is up 50% in dollars, right, it's up more in other currencies, 
But even though gold is up 50% in dollars, it's still not as much as the S&P is up like 70%. So while gold is outperforming foreign stock markets, it's not outperforming the U.S. stock market. So Americans are not buying. But Americans are making a big mistake. They're making the same type of mistake they made in January of 2000. Why didn't they want to buy gold in January of 2000? Because gold had been going down for 20 years and the U.S. stock market was a record high. But as a long-term investor, they should have faded that trade. They should have said, wait a minute, the U.S. stock market is at a record high. I'm going to sell. Oh, gold has been falling for 20 years? Oh, I want to buy that, right? I want to buy what's down and I want to sell what's up. No, Americans decided to sell what was down and buy more of what was up. And they learned a very expensive lesson. Unfortunately, they didn't really learn the lesson because the Fed bailed them out, right? The Fed slashed interest rates to reflate the bubble. And then when the bigger bubble popped in 2008, they, the Fed bailed out investors again, right? Well, I've been saying... Uh, for many, many years now that the third time is not going to be the charm when it comes to the Fed bailing out investors. It's going to be three strikes and they're out. So this is really the last chance I think investors have to save themselves. And you're getting a gift opportunity to save yourself now in these gold stocks. Because again, they're still down on the year despite gold closing today at um, 1556. And you know what's so significant about where gold is trading is think about the technical uh, factors here. I mean, 1350 was a six-year high. We broke out of that, and we went all the way up to 1550. Then we had a big pullback, like almost a $100 pullback, all the way to 1450. Now we're back at 1550, and we came through it. So not only did we hold support, because 1350 was resistance. We broke through that. And 1350 became support. And we never even went back down there. That's how strong it was. That major top became massive support. We never returned to it. We, the closest we got was maybe 1450. And then we went through the highs. We went up to 1610. And now we pulled back and we haven't been much below 1550. We haven't even gotten all the way down to 1540. We've been in the 1540s, but we haven't stayed there. So there's a lot of buying now at what used to be major resistance. That resistance has now become support. This is a bull market. It's a beautiful bull market, yet the gold stock investors are very cautious. They're very nervous. They're very worried, which is a great sign, but that also provides a great opportunity for people, as I've been saying, to buy into the gold stocks. I think you've got the best risk-reward profile going. So if you're willing to take the risk, I think the reward, if we're right, uh, is many, many times greater than what you could possibly lose if we're wrong. And I think the best way to play it is with my gold fund, the Euro-Pacific Gold Fund, EPGFX. Again, as a symbol, we are five-star fund by Morningstar. We were a top fund, uh, the number one fund by Lipper uh, for the five years ending December 2018 and for the three years ending December 2018. Get a prospectus, read it. You could buy my funds Anywhere, Schwab, Fidelity, best place to buy them, of course, is through Europe Pacific Capital. Talk to one of my reps. Go to europac.com. Uh, get some information on my gold fund and buy it. Buy into some gold stocks. Even if you don't buy my fund, buy some stocks someplace else. I mean, I think they're all going to go up. I think our portfolio is going to end up outperforming. Uh, that's why I think you, uh, you should buy that. Uh, but that's going to be a key. Right? And I think... A lot of people are missing this opportunity right now, and who knows how much longer 
uh, these bargain basement prices are going to be around. Uh, but while they are, take advantage of them. I want to turn my attention now to the jobs numbers that came out on Friday. This is my first podcast since the numbers came out. Remember, on Friday, I was traveling back to Puerto Rico, uh, landed just in time to experience more earthquakes. You know, I didn't even realize, I guess, uh, when we first moved here, how much seismic activity actually was going on in Puerto Rico. I, I mean, I knew about the hurricanes. I, I just didn't really know about uh, the earthquakes. So apparently we got both. Uh, but as far as I'm concerned, none of these natural disasters are nearly as bad as the man-made disasters that are imposed by the IRS. So when it comes to dealing with Mother Nature or the tax man, I'll take Mother Nature. Uh, as scary as uh, earthquakes are, the IRS is even scarier. Meanwhile, uh, you know, at least in Puerto Rico, the, uh, the temperature is always high and the taxes are always low. And that's uh, the way I like it to be. Uh, and if you like those things, too, you should consider joining me down here in, in Puerto Rico. But I want to get to the jobs numbers because it was a weak report. In fact, I was surprised at how little press this weak report got, especially given the fact that the press would like to take down Trump. Right. So why not focus on how weak this uh, this report was? So anyway, we created just one hundred and forty five thousand jobs. Uh, in the final month of 2019. And these were, again, low-paying jobs, service sector jobs. We lost, lost 12,000 manufacturing jobs. That was a big loss in that sector. And if you look at average hourly earnings, they rose by a scant 0.1. Very anemic wage growth in December. Wow, hours worked actually fell. They notched down to 34.3. So Americans earned less and then worked fewer hours. So they really earned less because they worked fewer hours and they got paid less for the hours that they worked. Uh, and so all in all, this was a very weak report. And, you know, we keep getting uh, the retail numbers coming out, retail sales, very weak. Target, you know, down about 7% today. Their holiday sales disappointed. Very weak report coming out from Target. Uh, and, you know, so if this is the greatest economy ever, you know, the strongest in our history, why are retail sales uh, so weak? I mean, if the consumer is so flush, if he's got, you know, a job and, you know, wages are really growing, why aren't they spending more uh, on Christmas? I think the data continues to belie uh, these false claims about a strong economy. And my feeling is that we're going to get more and more uh, weak economic data between now and the election. And again, as I said earlier, there's a good chance that we begin a stock market correction uh, now that uh, uh, the trade deal is in the rearview mirror and all that you can see uh, through your windshield is uh, a weakening economy, an overvalued stock market, maybe a, a rising gold price and a falling dollar, and the political reality that Donald Trump may in fact not be reelected, which, you know, kind of brings me uh, to last night's Democratic debates, which I watched. Uh, and some of you, if you follow me on Twitter, I generally uh, put out a few tweets uh, as I am watching the uh, Democratic debates. In fact, if it wasn't for that, I might fall asleep, uh, but I'm kind of forced to pay attention uh, so I can uh, I can I can put out some tweets. I mean, first of all, if you want to know who I think the winner was in this debate, it was Mayor Bloomberg. I mean, he was the winner because everybody in that debate lost. And so the fact that Bloomberg wasn't there, you know, he wins by default. You know, maybe, maybe Andrew Yang 
uh, you know, he might have come in second because he wasn't there either. Uh, but it was down to six people, right? So this is the smallest field. Remember, we started with 20. You know, they had, you know, two, two sets of 10. And so now, you know, it's narrowed down to a group of six. Of course, the Democrats are upset that they're all white. In fact, Andy Yang was the last non-white, right? He was Asian. And now he's gone. So, uh, but they do have women represented. Two out of the six are women, but they're still underrepresented, right? Because they're half the population, but they're only one third of the candidates left on the debate stage. And of course, uh, there is one homosexual, uh, which means that the, the homosexuals are overrepresented because one sixth of the candidates are gay and maybe uh, maybe two to five percent of the actual population are gay. So having one, I think, more than fulfills the quota there. Uh, but a lot of people, of course, are upset uh, that there are, are no Hispanics. There are no African-Americans uh, left on that stage. Now, clearly, right, that must mean the Democratic Party is racist. Right. Why are they not supporting African-American candidates? Clearly. Right. It must be because they are a bunch of racists, because after all, that's what they say if they look at any other uh, industry or any other private company. And, you know, if there is not a certain percentage of minorities there, uh, they don't say, well, maybe they just weren't qualified. Maybe they just weren't the best candidates for the job. No, they just assume disparate impact. We're just going to assume that the reason for the underrepresentation is racism. Well, if you're going to judge the Democrats by their own standards, right, the reason that there are no African-Americans uh, on the debate stage is because the Democrats are a bunch of racists. Of course, I don't believe that. But, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Uh, but meanwhile, if you listen to that debate, you know, it is a very scary thought that one of these clowns uh, is going to be the commander in chief and the president of the United States. You know, one interesting fact, too, about uh, Mayor Bloomberg, uh, number one, he's already spent like two hundred million dollars on his campaign, which I believe is more than Donald Trump spent out of his own money to actually win the White House. And uh, Bloomberg has spent that to, you know, to be maybe five percent in the polls. Right. Two hundred million dollars. That's an incredible sum of money uh, to be spent. But the interesting thing is that Bloomberg is apparently claiming that even if he doesn't get the nomination, which I don't think he's going to get it unless there's a brokered convention, right? Unless nobody wins. And then somehow in the convention, uh, he can manage to get uh, the Biden support uh, to come and behind him or something like that. So there's probably a way, like a slim chance that, that Bloomberg could be the nominee. Uh, but Obviously, if he was, that would really piss off, you know, the left fringe of the Democratic Party. But what Bloomberg is saying is that even if he's not the nominee, which is the most likely, that he's going to spend a billion dollars advertising for whoever that nominee is. Doesn't matter. So what Bloomberg is saying is even though he disagrees with a lot of the things that Bernie Sanders says and the things that Elizabeth Warren says, he would rather have Bernie Sanders than uh, Donald Trump. And he's willing to spend a billion dollars to make sure that we have Bernie Sanders instead of Donald Trump. And that should be something that should be of a concern, because if you get an extra billion dollars of ad money, uh, that is going to help on the margin. Uh, defeat President Trump. I mean, first of all, the ads are going to be focused on two things. One, they're going to be attack ads on Trump. 
right? And they're not going to be coming from Sanders himself, right? He can't coordinate with Sanders. That would be illegal. He could just do these things on his own. But he can probably say negative things that Sanders would never say himself. So he can really get down in the mud uh, when he criticizes Trump. So he could blast the media, uh, the airwaves in, in, in swing states with negative ads about Trump that really focus in on weaknesses that the media is overlooking or that have been overlooked. And at the same time, he can run all sorts of positive ads on whoever the Democratic candidate happens to be. And then these are ads that the Democratic candidate won't have to pay for. They could use their resources for other things, right? And and so it is going to make it easier for the Democrats to uh, defeat Trump. And at some point, the market has to start uh, pricing in that reality. And it is a, you know, a, a very, very uh, bad outcome. And again, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, you know, everybody was saying that if the market, uh, if Trump won, the market would crash and it didn't. And so anybody who's worried about Sanders winning, well, you know, if Sanders wins, well, the market won't crash either. There's a big difference there. Trump was promising lower taxes and less regulation. That was never a market negative. I said that. I kept saying, why is the people worried about the market going down if Trump wins when what he is promising to do is good for the markets? Now, a lot of other things that he was promising to do would also be good, uh, except he didn't deliver. Although if the bubble pricked, he was also talking about pricking the bubble, which would have been bad, but that never happened. But tax cuts and deregulation, that's exactly what the market wants. That's music to the market's ears. So that those fears didn't make sense to me, that the mainstream uh, Wall Street would be afraid of tax cuts and lower regulations. But what is bad for the economy, and in particular the stock market, is higher corporate taxes, higher individual taxes, and more regulation. And uh, Sanders is promising to deliver that in spades. Right. He is going to be, if elected, the biggest government Democrat in the history of the country. Right. We will have moved the furthest left we can ever move. And so that actually is dangerous. That is far more dangerous to the market than I think even the worst pessimist believes. But in any event, uh, that has to be factored in. The market has to start discounting that at some point between now and the election. Now, probably one of the uh, most interesting or entertaining, rather, uh, aspects of the debate is this feud now that's you, know, you can see it uh, escalating between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Right. They're battling for the left fringe of the party. And I think Bernie Sanders is coming up on top again. You know, most people uh, see Bernie Sanders as being a genuine guy uh, who, you know, you know, uh, has the courage of his convictions. Uh, even the people who disagree with Bernie think, you know, he's an honest guy. Uh, But I don't think Elizabeth uh, Warren necessarily uh, has that reputation. I think, you know, especially with the uh, Native American thing and pretending to be a minority, I think people look at her, a lot of people anyway, more as a phony. And Bernie Sanders is the real deal. And, of course, Bernie Sanders has the backing of AOC. And uh, so he's, you know, he said he's a Democratic Socialist. Uh, When you have um, Elizabeth Warren claiming that she's a capitalist to her bones, Uh, I guess a lot of, you know, socialists don't like the fact that she pretends to be a capitalist to her bones. And while that might help in the general election, it's not uh, winning her any favors among the far left uh, who are supporting Sanders. So one of the rumors that began circulating, right, was that Bernie Sanders had a private conversation with Elizabeth Warren 
and which Bernie Sanders said to her that he didn't think a woman would be able to win in 2020. Uh, probably like, hey, you know, maybe, you know, you should just support me uh, because I think that I got a better chance of winning than you do. And this is, you know, a private conversation. Maybe it took place. Maybe it didn't. I could see that it might have taken place. And then for whatever reason, Elizabeth Warren decided to leak the private conversation by stating that Bernie Sanders said that he didn't think a woman could be elected. Now, assuming he actually said something like that in confidence, you know, I can see where Bernie Sanders would be upset uh, that Elizabeth Warren uh, chose to divulge that information because, you know, politicians say a lot of things in private that they would never say in public. But of course, maybe he never said it. Maybe Elizabeth Warren is making it up, which is exactly what Bernie Sanders is alleging. And I don't know who's telling the truth because he said, she said, there's no uh, evidence of what happened in a private conversation. To me, it makes sense that Sanders might have said that. You know, now, obviously, he points to all the public statements that he made that a woman could be elected. Of course, you know, you're going to say one thing in private and something different in public. And I know, look, you know, he you could point to the fact that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, which he did. So clearly a woman could win the popular vote, which is true, but didn't win the Electoral College. And maybe he thinks uh, femininity was part of it. I mean, obviously, uh, Hillary Clinton was a particularly disliked female. Uh, maybe a different female candidate would have fared better. Uh, but I know Bernie Sanders did, you know, defer to Elizabeth Warren in 2016. Uh, you know, before he entered the race, he was seeing if she was going to challenge Hillary Clinton. And since she decided not to, he did. But for whatever reason, right, she lets this thing out. Either she lies. But the questions were very funny because the reporter asked Bernie Sanders, did you say this? And then he denies it categorically. I didn't say it. I would never say it. It's not me. And so then the very next question is asked to uh, Elizabeth Warren. And the, uh, the moderator says, Elizabeth Warren, how did you feel when Bernie Sanders told you a woman couldn't win? But Sanders had just said he never said it. So in effect, she just said Sanders was lying, right? And so how did you feel when he just, when, you know, when he told you that? And then, you know, she answers the question and Sanders is standing there like he can't believe it. And then the very next question is to the other uh, female candidate. And, and the, the moderator says, how do you feel knowing that Bernie Sanders said that a woman can't win. Would Bernie Sanders just deny that he said it? So I thought this is, uh, you know, everybody is ganging up on Bernie Sanders, which in fact may backfire uh, to Bernie Sanders' favor because people can see that they're ganging up on him. And if you look at the numbers, Bernie Sanders is surging in the polls. He is number one in raising money. He's raising more money than any other candidate. So he is the worst possible candidate as far as policy. But he also has the best chance of winning Right. Other than, you know, Biden. Right. Of the rest of the group. Uh, he could deliver the worst policy. So he is the market's worst nightmare. Right. And a lot of people just think, well, he's got no shot. Right. He can't possibly win. Well, if Bloomberg spends a billion dollars on top of whatever the Democratic Party is able to raise. And if this economy rolls over like it very well might. Uh, and, you know, if we if the stock market goes down, a lot of these things could happen. Uh, Sanders is going to win. Uh, and uh, people are overestimating the intelligence of the American voter not to want to vote in socialism. And that that risk, though, is going to have to be priced in the market. But I wanted to uh, talk about a few of the points 
uh, that I recall from the debate, you know, as in every debate, I mean, they always want to talk about the student loans and the student loan crisis. And I, you know, again, I keep chuckling about this uh, because, you know, these government student loans are a product of government, right? Government concocted them. In fact, I, I went over it on this podcast before, but they, the loans really started after they lowered the voting age to 18, right? Once they lowered the voting age to 18, you had all these college kids that could vote. When the voting age was 21, most people had graduated college before they can vote, right? Now they're voting. Some of them, you know, they haven't even graduated high school and they can vote. So if you want to get a bunch of kids who have not even started college or are just starting college, how do you get their vote? You promise them something for nothing. What did they promise? Hey, we'll give you student loans and you won't have to work uh, on your summer vacations because a lot of people like my father, you know, in order to pay for college because their parents didn't have the money. So during the summers, you know, they worked. They didn't take the summer off and hang out at the beach. They worked and they made enough money uh, to pay for college. And then they graduated. You know, they had they had no debt. They had a degree. And now they, they earn more money. But what the politicians said is, hey, the summertime is no time to be waiting tables. Have fun. Go to the beach. Travel. We'll ar- arrange for these low interest government loans. We'll guarantee these loans. You can borrow a bunch of money at a low interest rate. Have fun. Enjoy your summers. And then after you graduate with this valuable degree, okay, then you'll work and you'll pay back the loans and everything will be great. And the students, yeah, this is fantastic. I'm voting for the Democrats because the Democrats are promising me a summer vacation and a guaranteed student loan, right? Well, when you make a deal with the devil, the devil always collects a lot more than you bargain for. And so now, instead of working their summers to pay for college, the kids work their entire life to pay off the debt that they accumulated. Because the minute the government started guaranteeing the loans, tuition skyrocketed, and so the amount of money you had to borrow skyrocketed. And now, instead of a cheap college tuition that you can easily afford working for the summer, uh, college cost a fortune, and you spend a lifetime as an indentured servitude. And by the way, back in the day, when you got a college degree, it used to actually have a lot of value, right? So you you paid for a degree that was worth it. But now that the government pushed everybody to college and jacked up the price, you now have a worthless degree that cost a fortune, and people have accumulated massive amounts of debt to acquire a diploma of dubious uh, market value. So it's very funny that you see all these Democratic candidates complaining about the results of a Democratic program. And what is their solution? More government. You know, now government has to take over college completely. We have to make college free. Well, if you thought college got expensive when government provided loans to ease the cost, wait till you see how much more expensive it's going to cost when the whole thing is free, courtesy of the government. You know, in fact, there was a question and about uh, stuff that, you know, what they think Americans should get for free. You know, should they get this for free or should they get that for free? And, you know, they shouldn't even phrase the questions like that, right? It's not about what one American gets for free. It should be what another Americans have to pay for so that other people can get it for free. Because if one person gets something for free, somebody else has to pick up the cost. Now, of course, the Democrats want everybody to believe that it's the billionaires who are going to pick up the cost. But that's never the case. It's never the billionaires who pick up the cost. It is, um, it is the, the, the average guy. But, of course, you know, a lot of these young socialists, they, they don't know any better. But people think, they think that, you know, there's just going to be all this free stuff. Uh, but nothing is free. Uh, everything has a price. And the biggest price is when it comes from government. 
there was a lot of talk about uh, the health care and how expensive health care was. I mean, Bernie Sanders talked about how Americans were paying too much for health care. And I agree with Bernie Sanders on that point. I think health care is much too expensive in the United States, just like college uh, tuition is much too expensive. And both of those things cost so much because of government involvement. You know, it's not a coincidence that the two areas of the economy where the government provides the most support, the most subsidies, are the most overpriced. If you look at areas of the economy where the government is not involved, you don't see that. You see prices coming down. You see quality going up. Where the government gets involved, uh, things move in the other direction. So the key is if you want to have lower healthcare spending, the solution is to get the government out of healthcare and to get the free market into healthcare so that we have free market competition. Get rid of all these government disincentives, right, that, that drive costs higher. The same thing with education. If you want education costs to come down, let the free market provide education. You know, the liberals say, no, we can't have the free market providing education because only the rich would get educations. If the free market provided health care, only the rich would get health care. Well, if that were the case, you know, why are, are, are the, the poor clothed? I mean, we, we allow the, the free market to provide clothing. Why is it that only the rich are clothed, right? I mean, how is it that the poor have a lot of nice stuff to wear, right? You could easily argue, a socialist could argue, that clothing is very important. That, you know, we can't allow the free market to be in charge of clothes because then only the rich will have clothes and the poor are going to be naked and they'll, they'll freeze to death. What about food? Right. I mean, can we let the market, can we let the free market supply food? After all, only the rich are going to eat if we have a free market. That's nonsense. The poor are eating fine. Right. America is poor. I mean, eat better than, you know, middle class, you know, people in other parts of the world. Uh, so the free market has no problem providing food. No problem providing clothing and you know, no problem providing shelter. Why can't it provide education? Why can't it provide health care? It can. It could do it better and cheaper. And the less government involvement there is, the better it's going to be and the cheaper it's going to be. Now, of course, in a pure free market for health care, will the rich get better health care than the poor? Of course. That's one of the reasons to be rich. You could get better stuff, including health care. Will the rich get better education than the poor? Yes, right? Because the rich eat better food than the poor, but the poor still eat pretty damn good, right? The rich wear nicer clothes, fancier clothes than the poor, but the poor are still clothed pretty good, right? In fact, when you have the free market providing these things, the poor people have much better clothes, have much better food, and then much better education and much better health care than if the government provides it. Right. You remember, look at what people were wearing when the government provided clothing in communist China. Everybody dressed exactly the same. There was just one outfit. That's all you had to wear. Right. I mean, look at all the stuff. Go to these uh, low cost uh, clothing stores and look at all the stuff that poor Americans can buy. There's such a huge assortment of, of clothing that, that, that people can have that is provided by the free market. None of that is provided by government. Right? The poor have all these choices. The same thing with food. Yes, the rich can afford better food than the poor. But look at all the poor. Look at all the food the poor people have. You know, people were standing in line for hours. When the government is in charge of food, you got to queue up for hours just to get some crappy food. 
You don't have any choice. You think they had supermarkets in these communist countries where you just go in there and you have all these choices? No, there was no choice. You were lucky if you got anything to eat and you just had to wait online for hours just to get it. Right. So the free market can do everything better than government. But for some reason, when it comes to education and when it comes to health care, people, for some reason, don't believe that. And so they turn this stuff over to government and then the cost skyrockets. Right. And then they always say, well, we need more government. No, we need less government. We need more free market competition, more capitalism. And that will solve all the problems that the Democrats want to make worse uh, with more government. Same thing about prescription drugs, right? You have the candidates talking about how expensive prescription drugs are, right? And how we have to have lower prices for prescription drugs. Well, the main reason that prescription drugs are so expensive is because of the government, because of the FDA. The FDA requires drug companies to prove two things uh, when they have a new drug. One, they have to prove that it's safe. And the other is that they have to prove that it works that it's efficacious, right? So you got to prove safety and efficacy. And I mean, I don't think we should have an FDA at all, but if we did, okay, prove that it's safe, but don't force the company to prove that it works. Let the market discover if it works. Let doctors and patients decide if it works. As long as it's not going to hurt you, you know, let people try it, right? But no, you have to prove not only that it doesn't harm you, but that it actually helps. And so you have to run these random double blind uh, experiments. They cost a fortune. There's all these phases. There's all these trials. It costs, I don't know, a billion dollars, whatever it is, to get a drug approved. And in fact, most drugs are never approved. Most drugs don't make it. Sometimes they get all the way through phase three and then they lose. And you spend all this money, hundreds of millions of dollars on a drug, and you never get to sell it. So you don't get your money out of it. So what happens is, when they finally get a drug approved and they can bring it to the market, not only do they have to recover the cost of developing that drug, but they have to recover the costs of all the drugs that they tried to develop, but that got turned down and that they never got to sell. So the government is increasing the cost of research and development and to develop a drug. And as a result, to recover those costs to make a return on their investment, they have to charge these really high prices. So what could the government do if they wanted to lower the price of drugs. Well, just make it less expensive for companies to develop drugs. Take away the requirement at least to prove efficacy. And the cost of bringing new drugs to the market would plunge, right? Prices would come down. Now, what's the worst case that could happen? Somebody buys something that doesn't work? Okay, it doesn't work. Try something else, right? You know, the doctors can make a decision which drugs they think will work, which ones they won't, prescribe the ones they like, don't prescribe the, the ones they don't. Free market. This is a problem that the government created. They want to act like they could just order the prices to come down. They can't. They have to look at the cost structure. And the cost structure is high precisely because of government's excess involvement in the process. We would have a lot more drugs at much lower prices if we had less government. But, you know, their solution is more government, which means we're going to have fewer drugs and higher prices. Of course, you know, they also talked about the need to redistribute uh, wealth. You know, they talk about that all the time. But, you know, whenever you see one of these Democratic candidates or hear a Democratic candidate talking about redistributing the wealth, what they're really saying is they want to steal the wealth from the people who actually earned it and they want to give it 
to voters who didn't, right? It's really about theft. That's why they, uh, you know, the best definition I've read of an election is an advanced auction on the sale of stolen goods. And that's exactly what the Democratic candidates are promising to do. They're promising to steal goods and people are voting in advance uh, for the candidate who is promising to deliver those stolen goods to them. You know, I thought one of the uh, the uh, most ironic statements, though, I think came uh, from Joe Biden. Right. And of course, he's he's making these statements to try to criticize uh, the economy under Trump, rightly so. I mean, I am crit- criticizing the economy. I think the economy is not going to be uh, as a winning issue for Trump uh, because I think a lot of the people in the heartland, and these are the people that Joe Biden is, is, is speaking to, uh, have, have not been helped by this economy. I think they've been let down. I think they were expecting uh, change, just like they, they hoped for change under Obama, and they were disappointed. Uh, they, Trump has disappointed them as well. He didn't make America great again. He's just pretending he made it great again. Uh, but the economy really isn't, uh, isn't, isn't growing. And um, Biden is pointing this out, right? Biden is talking about the middle class. And he said the middle class is getting clobbered right now in this economy, right? As if, okay, you know, the middle class is getting clobbered, so vote for me, and I'm going to help the middle class. Meanwhile, Joe Biden was the vice president under Barack Obama for eight years. And the middle class was being clobbered for all eight of those years, right? That's why a lot of middle class Democrats voted for Trump, because they were clobbered under Obama and Joe Biden. And so they hoped for something different under Trump. They got more of the same. They're getting, you know, they're continuing to be clobbered because the failed policies of Obama, which were the failed policies of Bush, which were the failed policies of Clinton and Bush Sr., and all these policies are being continued. The bad monetary policy, the bad fiscal policy, the bad regulatory policy continues, and that's why the middle class continues to get clobbered. But Joe Biden ought to know because he's been clobbering them, not just for the eight years he was the vice president. He was in the U.S. Senate clobbering the middle class for 36 years. I mean, he was in Congress for 36 years. He was in the White House for eight years. And he's going to help the middle class now. Why did he do it then? He had all this time. He had all these years in government to help the middle class. Yet he clobbered them. And now he's pointing out that the middle class is struggling. Yes, they are. But they've been struggling the entire time he's been in Washington. And the reason they've been struggling is because they've been burdened with high taxes and an unproductive economy that has suffered the consequence of excess taxation and excess regulation and has only been propped up uh, by the Fed's printing presses and a financial bubble that has benefited some at the expense of uh, most other people. And this whole bubble is going to pop. But Joe Biden is probably not the best messenger to deliver this. I think that Bernie Sanders is going to have a much more viable message, at least with, uh, you know, the electorate, the American electorate, to try to talk about how the middle class has been getting clobbered, because even though he has uh, been in the U.S. Senate, he's had no power. He's been, you know, a party unto himself. So he, he is not really responsible. He can claim, look, I didn't do any of this. I didn't do any of this bad stuff, even though he doesn't even know what the bad stuff was, because he obviously supported a lot of these policies. I mean, as far as he's concerned, the only reason that the middle class is suffering is because we didn't do even more of the stuff that caused their suffering. Uh, but this is the type of nonsense that voters may, in fact, buy into, which, again, 
is where all the risk is. The markets are ignoring this risk. The risk is there. The political risk is there. In fact, we've never had more risk. The bubble has never been bigger. The economy has never been more screwed up. The political risk has never been greater, yet the ruling class, the Republicans, Wall Street has never been more optimistic, and they're in for the mother of all disappointments. (music) 